Hello, and welcome to my podcast, The Rise and Fall of the Qing Dynasty, Cup of Solid Gold, and this is Episode 7, Renaissance Emperor, Part 2. In the last episode of this podcast, I covered the first half of Kang Shi's reign and his general biography, where he came from, and what the situation was in China during that time. We learned that he claimed and subdued southern China, and that he successfully dealt with the eight-year Chinese civil war called the War of the Three Feudatories. As part of that victory, he also annexed Taiwan. Kangxi was now ready to deal with issues at China's northern border, beginning with the Russian settlers and the hunters and the Cossack incursions into Manju and the Heilongjian River Valley, particularly the fort at Albizan. Now that southern China was under the control of the Qing, Kangxi could now focus more on the settler-hunter incursion issues coming from the fort at Albizan. In 1685, Kangxi sent about 10,000 troops and about 5,000 naval people up the river to Albizan, where the fort was located, as well as an additional 200 cannon. The Qing Military forces destroyed that fort rather quickly, and it was only at that time garrisoned by a handful of Cossacks. And then they left. A year later, the Cossacks came back and rebuilt the fort. Kangxi again sent the military, but this time he got involved in a protracted siege. And after about one year of this siege, Kangxi, and in fact both parties, wanted to call it off. This area was very remote to both of them and was difficult to defend for both of them. In August of 1689, both sides met at Nerchinsk, Russia, which is a Siberian outpost. It is located approximately 6,000 kilometers from Moscow and 1,000 kilometers from Beijing. Kangxi sent his best ministers to do this treaty. His Manjo minister was named Swatu, and his Han minister was named Guoguang. And they brought with them 10,000 men and translators. For the Russians, they sent Field Marshal Fyodor Golovin and about a 1,500-man excursion with him to negotiate an agreement on behalf of Russia and Peter the Great. Let me say this at this point. There are many that have compared Kangxi to Peter the Great. I know I made the comparison in the last episode regarding the Sun King, Louis XIV, and Kangxi. Well, that same comparison has been made with Peter the Great. Anyway, the 10,000 troops that the Qing brought with them impressed the Russians. 
And another thing that was impressive was Kangxi recognized that neither side could speak their, the other language. So he sent along with these people two Jesuit monks who were multilingual. And early on in negotiations, it became very clear from both sides that they wanted to, there was a common goal. They wanted to both settle the border permanently between China and Russia. In September of 1689, the treaty was drafted into five languages, Mandarin, Mongolian, Russian, Manju, and Latin. The Jesuits actually insisted on the Latin version. It was the Latin version that was signed by the parties. All border markings demarcating the borders between Russia and China that resulted from this agreement were in all five languages. And the terms were very simple. Number one, the Elbazan fort was abandoned permanently and destroyed, never to be occupied again. Number two, hunters were banned from crossing the border. Citizens of each country could cross the borders, but they had to have proper visas. There were also provisions for reciprocal extraditions in the cases of criminals and deserters. More importantly, it settled the border between China and Russia, which is roughly the Heilongjian or Amur River. And this is 3,000 kilometers long. And that that border demarcation still applies today. The Chinese got Amur River Valley back, which were the ancestral lands of the Manjus and the Qing. The Russians got approximately 150,000 kilometers of new territory. So there's something in this agreement for both sides. Maybe also as important to the Qing War was the Russians would be neutral on the issues the Chinese and the Qing had with, at that time, Mongolia and Tibet. This treaty, this Treaty of Nurchinsk, was the first treaty between an East Asian state and a European state. Kangxi was considered brilliant and patient in delivering this agreement. Kangxi's religious affairs, as I've mentioned, he was generally very accepting and open-minded for all religions. Jesuit priests would describe him as, a no, as, as having a nobility of soul, hardworking, open-minded. But this had limits. And the Jesuits and the Catholics and everyone else would soon find out what those limits were. And what is gone down as the rights controversy, that's R-I-T-E-S, rights controversy. And how this came about was Catholicism worked in China alongside Confucianism. It was a very unique blend of Catholicism. Many of the Chinese rituals were uniquely Chinese. And the Chinese Catholics had rituals that were not ordinary among other Catholics. 
And at first, the Catholic priests that were aware of this tolerated it. But for some reason or the other, word reached the Vatican, and Pope Clement XI weighed in on this. And in 1704, he banned the rituals, stating they were not compatible with the Catholic Church. Kangxi went ballistic. He strongly disagreed and issued his own edict, banning Christianity in China and Christian missions. He even went further and stated that he thought the Pope was dumb and petty for caring about these things. He questioned the Pope or anyone's authority to tell anyone what anything was in China. That was his, Kangxi's that is, exclusive realm. The Pope had seriously stepped on the Emperor's toes and the Emperor let him know that. The western border was also a problem for Kangxi and he wanted to attend to that. For many years, an indigenous tribe in Outer Mongolia, the tribe was called the Jungarar, were aggressive and caused trouble all along the northwest and western borders. They were a Mongol tribe, and in 1696, Kangxi personally led and commanded a military adventure across the Gobi Desert against these people. And with him, he had about three armies and 80,000 troops. And in the Battle of Zhao Mudwajur, Zhao Mudwajur, in June of 1696, Kanchi annihilated the Jungarars and captured Outer Mongolia and making it a vassal state. This garnered the Qing about two decades of peace because in 1717 the Jungarars were added again, but this time they invaded Tibet and captured Lhasa. Kangxi would have to send the military there to expel them. Kangxi believed that Tibet had religious value and worried about the sympathies of his people and, in Tibet, the sympathizers with the Dalai Lama. And Kangxi believed this could potentially cause problems. So after Kangxi expelled the Jungarars, the Qing incorporated Tibet into its empire as a suzerainty, and this was in 1720. Now we reach the part of the story with Kangxi that has probably fascinated more people than any other part of Kangxi's reign. It certainly is a very dramatic story. It's very compelling, fascinating. I understand there has been numerous dramas on television in China regarding this period of time and these events I'm going to talk about. It's probably also the least understood, but it's certainly one of the most famous. And let me set it up a little bit. Kangxi had 35 sons, 24 of which lived to adulthood. He also had 20 daughters, eight of which lived to adults. There was bound to be trouble. Kangxi lived a long time, had a long reign. He had sons born of nobility, lots of ill will, 
how could any parent control this? And the drama centers on Kangxi's, nine of Kangxi's sons. And they were all vying for some degree, with some degree or in some degree or the other, on power. I'm not going to name or try, or I'm going to try to only minimally refer to the names of these sons because it is confusing. It's confusing to me. And in the historical journals I read, I think it's confusing to some of the historians as well. So I'm going to try to refer to them minimally and by number. I'll say this too, that this probably, this era I'm going to talk about is one of the greatest mysteries of Kanchi's reign. This harkens back to this issue of succession, the same problems that Kangxi's grandfather, Huang Taiji, had. So arguably, nothing had been accomplished or improved or done to prevent these kinds of problems since the death of Huang Taiji some 75, 80 years prior to this period. To this day, this period, this issue I'm going to talk about is fiercely debated. And there's lots of questions about whom Kangxi may have chosen to succeed him. So let's begin. In 1675, Kangxi named his son Yurang, his seventh son, to be the crown prince to be the one that was going to take over the throne when Kangxi died. Now, let me say this about the numbering. I said the seventh son. Even this is confusing because sometimes the numbering is not consistent. It depends on whether or not you're talking about seventh son that lived to adulthood or seventh sons that were born in a chronological order to Kangxi. Nevertheless, Kangxi named Yurang in 1675. The boy was quite young at the time, Kanshi himself was only 20. Yurang's mother would be the mother empress Xiao Chengren, and that would have been Kanshi's first wife. And she died giving birth to Yurang, and many believe this is one of the reasons why Kanshi chose him to be crown prince. Some people criticized Kanshi for this as it's never been the Chinese custom to name the child outright like this, and particularly this early. But perhaps Kangxi's strategy was that he was trying to prevent jealousy and power struggles. And in fact, this strategy worked for a while. There was, for a while, peace among all of his sons. But that would change. As time went on, Yurang displayed troubling tendencies and questionable morals. There were allegations that he was physically abusive and cruel, that he had sexual relations with one of Kangxi's concubines, that he purchased young boys for illicit purposes. It was, it's also said that Yurang was his own worst enemy in the sense that he was gullible, that he was prone to court schemes, that he would listen to the wrong people. Kangxi at first was patient, 
with all these allegations. After all, he'd raised this boy himself. But that faith and trust in Yurong slowly eroded as the embarrassments grew. And in 1707, Kangxi had enough. He removed Yurong as crown prince and placed him under house arrest. Kangxi ordered his oldest son, Yinjur, to watch over him. Now, Yinjur thought this is his opening to show what he could do and impress his father, and maybe his father would name him to be crown prince. Keep in mind that during all this time, the other brothers were also trying to vie for the crown prince as well. But Yinjur turned out to be a huge disappointment. He would lie about his brother to Kangxi. Yinjur drove a wedge between Kangxi and Yurang. He sabotaged the relationship between the father and the son. He would trick Yurang. Yinjur even went so far as to suggest to Kangxi that the only way to, elim- to eliminate Yurang's problem was to execute him. Kangxi had enough. He was enraged by all of this and ruined Yingjur's chances of ever becoming crown prince, and Kangxi placed him under house arrest. In 1709, Kangxi was tired of all these disputes, and he wanted them to stop. So he restored Yurong back as the crown prince. Kangxi argued and believed that his son had been mentally ill for a lot of the embarrassment, the previous embarrassments, and that he now had fully recovered. But only three years later, in 1712, Kangxi took one of his southern trips into the Yangtze region region and left Yurong in charge. And while Yurong was in charge, that he fell under the influence of some very bad advice. And word got back to Kangxi that Yurong was advised to suggest to Kangxi that he abdicate. Well, that was the last straw. Kangxi removed Yurong again that same year, placed him under house arrest again, along with some of the other conspirators to this latest action. Kangxi then announced that he would not name a crown prince before his death. He told everyone that the successor would be named in his last will and testament and locked up at a safe place until he died. But that didn't stop the skullduggery, and the vying. There was lots of speculation which son he had chosen. Each son had their own supporters and detractors. It basically came down to two of sons. One son was called Yinsa, and he was very popular with the palace people, and many of the other brothers supported him. He allegedly was very capable but also very arrogant. And maybe he was too capable. And there was thoughts that Kangxi feared him because he thought he was too capable. Kangxi feared that if he named Yinsa, or if Yinsa found out that Kangxi had named him as crown prince, that he might even try to execute Kangxi. The second candidate was one of his other sons named Yinjin. 
and his personal name was Aishin Jielo Yinjin. He also had his supporters. But he had two other things going for him. One was that Yinjin was very coy about showing whether or not he, he wanted to be crown prince or not. He would hide his ambitions from Kangxi. The second thing going for Yin Zhen was that he was friends with a fellow by the name of Long Kuda, Long Kuda, who was his uncle. But Long Kuda also had the trust of Kangxi because he was the commander of the military police and the capital police and would guard the imperial, imperial palaces. Yin Zhen was also very close with another fellow by the name of Nian Ganyao, who was a powerful guard, a powerful, I'm sorry, a powerful general, and also had trust from Kangxi. In December of 1721, Kangxi fell ill during a deer hunting trip. And he became a recluse. And except for Longquida, didn't want to see anybody. But because of Ying Zhen's relationship with Longquida, he was able to gain access to his father. And his father got progressively worse. And about a year later, on the evening of December 20th, 1722, Kangxi assembled seven of his non-disgraced sons to his bedside and told them, who he had named as crown prince to be the successor. And that night, Kangxi died. He was 68 years old. His final resting place is in the Qing tombs northeast of Peking. So Kangxi, whose personal name was Aishin Jielo Xuanya, goes down in history as the certainly the longest emperor in Qing history, and I believe in Chinese history as well. But Kangxi's death sparked more controversy. Kangxi had declared in his will, and according to those that attended that bedside meeting on the night Kangxi died, Yin Zhen as the next emperor. And Yin Zhen immediately, publicly announced that he was the emperor. But it wasn't without controversy. It had been long rumored that Yin Zhen had altered the will. He certainly had the opportunity because Longquido would have been the guard and they were good friends. Yin Zhen also had motive. He wanted to be emperor. But I don't buy it. It is alleged that what Yong Yinjen did was he changed the will to read fourth prince from the original 14th prince. And in the next episode, I'll get a little more into that. So in summary, was Kangxi a good emperor? Well, I think he was. I don't think there's any question about it. I believe he epitomized the mandate of heaven and what we've talked about and what we've learned about the mandate of heaven. China had grown under his stewardship. 
the country expanded. The Qing, the Chinese, acquired the area north of the Heilongjiang River. They acquired Outer Mongolia. They took control over Tibet, Taiwan, and they reclaimed southern China. These were all significant events. At the same time, Kangxi made peace with China's neighbors. He opened China to the world. He expanded its global influence and left China in pretty good shape. Except for the sun thing, I think his record is pretty much unblemished. And I'm not sure in the end you can really fault him for his sons because he had many of them and he reigned a long time and there were lots of power and wealth to bequeath. So there was lots of motive. I'm not sure anybody could control that. So, Renaissance man? Absolutely. Renaissance emperor? Absolutely. People then and today look up to him. He left a positive image for the Chinese or anyone or any leader to copy. Next episode, I'll talk about his son, Yongzhen. That's his official name and his reign. And with that, thank you. It's been a pleasure.